0: Big Idea. I'm Douglas Kerr. This week we're talking about free speech. Article 19 of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights declares, quote, everyone has the right to freedom of opinion and expression. This right includes freedom to hold opinions without interference and to seek, receive and impart information and ideas through any media and regardless of frontiers, unquote. While we all might like to be able to express ourselves freely, it is a surprising and radical notion that everyone should have a right to exchange information and ideas. In practice, everyone agrees that these rights, if they exist, are not unlimited. Some information and ideas are protected as the property of individuals or institutions. Others may be interdicted, on the grounds that disseminating them would be harmful. Obscenity, libel, incitements to violence are examples. In any case, can speech ever actually be free? Who are the advocates and who are the enemies of free expression? What are its benefits and risks? And who decides its limits? To answer at least some of these questions, I'm talking today with Simon Young, Professor and Associate Dean of Law at Hong Kong University and a specialist in constitutional and human rights law. And Chris Hutton, Professor of English at Hong Kong U, a scholar of language, politics and law and a historian of ideas. So as a historian of ideas, Chris, let me start with you and ask, when does the idea of a right to freedom of expression arise? Well one one place to locate that I
1: think is the 18th century and the enlightenment. So the German philosopher Jürgen Habermas uh, identified what he called the public sphere and the the origins of public sphere he found in a kind of urban property owning uh, intellectual class who would meet to debate ideas in coffee houses and salons in the 18th century. century yes mm-hmm. and he and, and also the origins of modern newspapers in this period. And I think he identified this as going on to the mid-19th century. And following on from that, he started to talk about the dangers of the colonization of this public sphere by cons- modern consumer societies. So there's a, a, this, this political ideal, I think, of a, of a sphere where ideas are freely exchanged in a space which is not constrained or, or not owned by anyone in particular, sort of a public or semi-public space. And, of course, you also have the political ideas in the American Revolution and notably the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, uh, which says that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, among other things. So that's a very powerful statement about um, freedom of speech in a political context.
0: So Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech. That suggests that freedom of speech is something that is already there. And it shouldn't be interfered with by Congress.
1: Well, you do have an earlier, the English Revolution, you do have the Bill of Rights, the English Bill of Rights, which, in some ways, the American revolutionaries are looking back to what they imagine is an is a ideal common law, which the American Revolution is trying to restore, the British having betrayed their own political principles. I think that's. So I guess the, these ideas do have a much longer lineage than the 18th century. So you have a Bill of Rights in the 17th century. And uh, you have debates in the 17th century in England about uh, freedom of the press and so on, and freedom of publishing, associated with Milton and other other figures.
0: Everyone assumes that freedom of speech is a a good thing. Mm. Why? What Hmm. is freedom of speech for?
2: The first idea um, is that it has something to do with uh, individuals and autonomy uh, and personhood. Uh, that free speech uh, uh, helps us achieve a certain level of uh, self-fulfillment, um, uh, and so that's a very individualist idea of freedom of uh, uh, speech. Uh, so that you
0: can't be a complete or authentic individual. Yes. Unless you're free to. Yes.
2: And of course, the best example of that is artistic freedom of mm-hmm. expression, academic freedom of expression. Um, uh, the other idea is uh, uh, also another um, sort of uh, uh, idea that goes back to John Stuart Mill about how speech is related to uh, truth. Uh, that uh, with speech um, your ideas are in a marketplace uh, where uh, ideally you're going to arrive at the truth, Um, and so it has a very utilitarian function. Um, And then the third idea uh, is is, is the close relationship between speech and the polity and, and how we have political progress uh, or political order.
0: Wouldn't it be a lot easier to govern if people didn't have such freedom? Well,
2: um, I think with freedom of speech, you uh, achieve a certain degree of progress uh, and you find out those who are corrupt or who aren't uh, working uh, effectively or efficiently, and hopefully uh, you would then have a political change to address uh, those deficiencies.
0: Okay, so going back to what Simon said about um, the second foundation of freedom of speech, this notion of truth, the, Mill's idea is that truth cannot emerge unless there's a proper opportunity for debate, for people to disagree and argue about it. Um, that assumes that truth isn't something that's, that we know already. Truth isn't something that's given and absolute
1: I think that there's a whole philosophical set of assumptions behind that about how you arrive at truth. You're absolutely right. And I think that um, people, when they actually defend free speech, they've already set out an area in which they want free speech to be free. And they've already set out other areas where they think free speech will not be. There will not be any free speech. So there's something much more um, complex going on behind this. The principle itself, the political principle that Mill sets out, I think, is is very powerful but if you look at the reality of the world i think that there there are always a lot more um factors like who gets to speak how do you speak how do you enter the public sphere you know who controls the public sphere whose voice gets even heard and i think these are issues which concern us today a lot you know
2: good to start by looking at the broader uh, international context um chris has talked uh, about some of the more historical instruments but uh, when we talk about modern international human rights law, uh, the right of freedom of expression uh, or free, freedom of speech uh, is of course uh, an essential right in these international instruments. Uh, going back of course the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, 1948, 1950, the European Convention on Human Rights, and then the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, which has a special uh, meaning for Hong Kong in 1966. And so in Hong Kong, our two constitutional instruments, of course, both protect uh, freedom of expression, Our Hong Kong Bill of Rights, uh, which came into force in 1991 uh which is uh copied pretty much word for word from the the international covenant on civil and political rights article 16 of our bill of rights uh provides that everyone shall have the right to hold opinions uh, without interference that's the uh, freedom of opinion but more particularly is uh, article uh, paragraph 2 everyone shall have the right to freedom of expression Uh, This right shall include freedom to seek, receive, and impart information. So that emphasizes not only the person who's speaking, but also the recipient as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And ideas of all kinds, uh, regardless of frontiers.
0: Uh, So this is coming directly from the... Universal Th- Declaration. That's
2: right, but it, it provides a bit more detail, and particularly paragraph 3, which is uh, quite important, um, either orally or in writing or in print or in form of art. So this is very important because it emphasizes that it's not just the content of speech that is protected, but also the, uh, the method uh, by which spree- uh, speech is, is expressed. Because when you look at the uh, covenant uh, on civil and political rights, uh, there are rights that are provided uh, in the in there that do not uh, expressly come with restriction clauses uh, so for example, uh, many of the uh, criminal justice rights right to a fair trial they don 't expressly uh, uh, indicate that uh, but here is a right where it was felt that uh, it had to be indicated as well and so um, but uh, it 's in accordance with a principle of legality that we restrict rights. It's not sort of willy-nilly, whenever the government likes to uh, restrict mm-hmm. the rights, that, that they can be restricted. And so there's emphasis on the restrictions having to be provided by law, being necessary. And, and there are seven grounds, and only seven grounds on which you can limit uh, freedom of expression.
0: I mean, are we talk- We're not no longer talking about Hong Kong's laws. We're talking about a, a, a broader interpretation of what Freedom speeches and where the limits are.
2: Well, they are in the uh, international covenant, so they are captured in this, uh, you know, uh, international treaty, uh, and we have domesticated it. So we've actually uh, incorporated into Hong Kong domestic law. Thank you. So the
0: international covenant is a, a an instrument. Agreed, is it a United Nations? That's
2: right, an international treaty. It's, right. um, per- perhaps the most well known international human rights treaty. And so in Article 16, uh, uh, paragraph 3, uh, there's reference to respect for the rights of others, uh, respect for the reputation of others, so uh, laws against mm-hmm. sort of defamation and libel, right. uh, protection of national security, uh, protection of public order. And then there's a word in brackets, uh, a French word, oudre public, uh, which needs to be highlighted. That would be a separate ground because it's a broader notion than just public order Um, and uh, public health uh, and and public morals. Uh, So uh, indecency laws, I would uh, uh, expect, is what is contemplated there.
1: We were talking earlier about this, about the issue of flag burning, and I think this is a very interesting case because... What is speech, well, the definition of speech? So the U.S. has a 1989 um, Supreme Court decision, Johnson, where five to four the Supreme Court declared that burning the national flag was constitutionally um, protected expressive conduct. So it's a very close vote and a very divisive issue in the U.S. Mm. And in Hong Kong we have a case in 1999 where the Court of Final appeal said that actually – You were not allowed to burn the national or the SAR flag or to damage them or to... and so on. And one of the grounds was this order public, which you mentioned. And another one is that you can make the same point in a different way. That is, the mode of expression can be restricted in this case because you can make the same kinds of statements in other ways, which I rather doubt, actually, because burning the flag is such an emotive issue that, in a way, you can't make the same kind of powerful statement another way,
0: I think. But But it's curious, isn't it, that this... What we would, we would consider in common sense terms to be an action actually is interpreted as, as an utterance.
1: Yes, I mean the US has a lot of interesting case law about what counts because the moment something is speech then it gets all these constitutional protections. So the boundary between speech and action becomes extremely important. So there's a case I think where people were sleeping in a park mm-hmm. in violation of the law so the, the court was asked to decide whether that was constantly protected since they're breaking the park's ordinance but they're also protesting and the, the, the Scalia, the judge, I think, said sleeping in the park is not speech. You know? mm-hmm. so But you could, of course, read it as speech if you wanted to. And I think this is one of the most fascinating areas of free speech law. What, what do we mean by speech? I think, and Of course,
2: the, the U.S. law seems to take a, a more restrictive or narrower approach. But once you get in the door, mm, yeah, then right. you have very strong protections. Whereas the approach that's adopted in, in other common law jurisdictions, Canada, including Hong Kong, uh, starts off with a very broad definition of speech. Uh, basically captures anything that is expressive uh, uh, expressive behavior. and an example is used in a, in a Supreme Court of Canada case about parking a vehicle uh, parking a vehicle. You don't ne- necessarily think of as speech, but if it's con- trying to convey a message um, then, um, uh, then that could be, that could be included.:
0: I Think I noticed in the um, exceptions that you gave. Um, that there's nothing about religion.
2: I think the intention of this law is that if uh, uh, such an important right is to be restricted, uh, there has to be real tangible harm, uh, not just sort of ill feelings, um, and because that can be very subjective. Um, and that's why, why I think the flag-burning case is very controversial, isn't it? Because what was what is "udre Public? Uh, the court defined it in a broader manner than than public order. I, mean, I think we all can understand public order disorder uh, especially these
1: days in the US. I mean you have veterans who feel very personally pained by this and you know, people who've lost yeah. you know family members in combat. So I think although, you know, instinctively I would favor this as a sort of free speech right, I do think one should recognize yeah. the sort of emotional a cost to, to some people in the society, I think. You know. Well, on that point, then, of course, in, back to religion, you've got
2: uh, hate, hate laws yeah, yeah. Uh, and vilification laws where a line is being drawn. It's not just people's ill feelings or being offended. right? Is, this is where, there are real, where there's real damage.
1: Maybe we could look at also, think about the public sphere again and the issue of commercial and corporate oh. speech. I think it's another angle on this, which, you know, Habermas's concern is that the so-called public sphere becomes dominated by commercial voices and by consumerism and so on, so that this sort of ideal individual dialogue doesn't happen. Yeah. So the press is owned by a few, a few people and ownership of, and also access to the public sphere. How do you get access in a modern society? Obviously through yeah. media. So I think there's, there are, there are
0: very difficult issues there for mm. modern societies yeah. about ownership of media and so on. Yeah. Habermas' notion is based on what might seem a, a rather naive or idealized sense for all these gentlemen sitting around in, in 18th-century cafes. <laughs> yes,
1: it's a, con- a conversation, I think, yeah. a rational conversation. Whereas, obviously, if you don't, you know, if, if the me- if the whole public sphere is dominated by commercial interest, then then, I, then you cannot really enter that as an individual. I think that's. Mm. the
2: Mm-hmm. Now, there was a recent, or uh, well, not too recent, but there was a case in Hong Kong um, that related to commercial expression, um, and it related to doctors. Um, and it's it's a good example of a successful challenge, constitutional challenge to laws on the basis of freedom of expression. The laws had prohibited the doctors from advertising. Um, and it was found that it went too far. I mean, there are certainly values for having uh, or reasons for having these kinds of laws to protect uh, to protect the you know professionalism of doctors and the dignity of doctors. Uh, but they just gone too far. You couldn't even uh, indicate um, uh, information that may have been beneficial to the public in terms of he- conveying certain health information um, and even uh, you know the cost of how uh, medical practices would would be conducted would which would be a valuable information I think uh, for for the public uh, in this area so it, sometimes it's, it's it, one has to look very carefully at the facts of the cases and how far uh, the speech is being sort of breached um, in, before you can sort of come to a final assessment um, and in, in
0: that case. What was the outcome?
2: Well, the outcome was the the, the, the regulations of the profession were struck down mm-hmm. uh, as being unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. And the doctors then had an opportunity to redraft in light of what the court had said. Um, and they did that. And then what, what was quite interesting about this is that without there being another case, the lawyers had a close look at their own. Uh, 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 guidelines, and they also liberalized uh, the mm-hmm. guidelines um, so it was it was uh, quite a significant uh, uh, case in having that impact um, and I think there were a lot of worries about the profession about uh, think some, some, some of the practice you see in other countries where you see lots of advertising of professional services,
0: but we really haven 't seen really any of that since these cases
2: yeah.
0: um Okay, we started talking about the professions. Let's have a go at academic freedom. <laughs> uh, Chris, the basis of academic freedom.
1: Well, um, the basis of academic freedom, I guess, is the autonomy of universities institutionally and their, the understanding of their social role. Universities are also meant to be places for unpopular ideas and difficult ideas and challenging ideas. And the classroom is meant to be such a place, I think, so, where we don't just go with the flow and we challenge our students and, and so on, and inform society. I think one of the problems that have been raised is whether universities in their sort of managerial turn have, have um, sort of undermined academic freedom. You know, and, and one of the issues is peer review. I think peer review... Mm peer review of of people's writings because a peer review is supposed to be a kind of
0: impartial sort of assessment of your work by someone in your field but of course you you better just explain this if you want to publish something yes Mm -hmm. it's going to get assessed by by people in the field and Mm
1: -hmm. as we know if you know academics of course this mythical impartial Mm -hmm. (laughs) assessor so of course there may not be a better system but peer review does serve i think to to mean that, in a way, you, unpopular ideas may not get published, or they may not be published in the in the sort of senior sort of outlets in the field. And uh, so, there's a very complicated idea around. So, who's really an expert about something? Because if you look at the history of ideas, you know today's expert is you know is, t- is tomorrow's quack.
0: You know. <laughs> the enemies mm. of freedom of speech. We've mm. said a great deal. of Who are the people or the institutions who tend to want to line up against it, to restrict it in in various ways. Simon?
2: Well, the obvious uh, candidate, of course, is governments, um, and uh, particularly non-democratic governments, um, where uh, they fear the speech may undermine their legitimacy, may undermine their rule. um, And, uh, you you know, many, one might think, Unwarranted sort of uh, uh, concerns um, and hence uh, that feeds into policy making in a very thorough way um, and, and and hence um, uh, you know in Hong Kong of course we 're in a very special place where um, we have to deal with these issues. Uh, um, increasingly, uh, uh, as we as we uh, you know are trying to make sense of one country, two systems.
1: I mean, related to that is also large corporations often mm. use various parts of the law to prevent discussion of of their products, but also mm. own ownership of media. I think I mean some countries restrict ownership of media to you know by nationality. To I think the US to a certain extent, but one of the issues in Hong Kong is who actually owns all these media and who are they. Mm. I think, so, I think this has become very apparent in the sort of um, in the uh, debates about the public sphere in Hong Kong. Yeah. So, uh, is, does Hong Kong have a free press, or yeah. how free yeah, is Hong Kong? That's my press? next question. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, what's the answer? Does well, Hong Kong have a free press? I think Hong Kong has a relatively free press. I mean, I think there's there's a you know on some issues it's very free. On other issues, it, you know, maybe more policy related to the mainland, there may be. There may be pressure on journalists or the use of pressure on advertisers in Hong Kong, so I think uh, you know Apple Daily is obviously a mm-hmm. standout in the sense that it takes a very strong line against the mainland government and its, its policies in Hong Kong, so obviously who advertises in Apple daily is mm-hmm. is also a, a factor you know
2: well, I think of course, in Hong Kong, the distinguishing f- uh, feature when compared to the mainland is is the free internet and access to the internet. That makes a great uh, difference uh, here in how we uh, receive information uh, and obtain information. Um, and so, while there may be these issues with these big media companies, but you know, people, ordinary people can still find out what's going on through the internet or, or convey that information.
1: Yes, I think I do think this is a free society, and I think we shouldn't exaggerate the sort of mm. the lack of freedom of speech. But I th- I think there's something which we'll be looking at, you know, then over the next 10 or 15 years, how this develops. But mm. I do I do feel that the universities, you know, operate mm. largely freely in Hong Kong, at least in my experience. And uh, I don't feel any pressure on myself or in the university to take a particular line on
0: any particular issue. Yeah.
2: yeah.
0: I, I, it's quite easy to see how societies cease to be free. How they they lose freedom of speech and the other freedoms that go with, and freedom of to hold opinion is something we haven't even talked about, but mm. that could go as well. Curious to think about how societies become free. Uh, it, it's easy to to go down the slope, but more difficult to go up it.
1: There are a lot of slippery slope arguments about you know you give up this an incremental loss of freedom, and I, th- I think um, historically. Uh, what we think of as modern, uh, freedom, political freedoms have been gained by, by violent, violent revolutions, I think, mm-hmm. which have then become liberalized. I mean, if you think of the French Revolution, with, with some of its, you know, became rather, became tyrannical, became autocratic, but mm-hmm. ultimately this is a breach in a sort of feudal order, which you could argue led to a kind of, a sense of the rule of law and modern freedoms. So, I think, uh, I think there is, you know, it's a very complex and messy history. I don't think there's any simple, you know, uh, and rarely do um, basic political freedoms get given, you know, by governments.
2: Mm. You know. It raises broader questions about what what the law uh, has uh, to say about these things, or, or what, or how can law facilitate uh, greater freedom or not. Um, and I think one has to recognize that law has has a very limited role to play at at, at a certain level. Um, take the issue that we have in Hong Kong about um, radio broadcasting. Uh, we have a lot of uh, cases that go through the courts. Of um, usually, it's uh, members of political groups wanting to uh, get radio broadcasting licenses uh, and, and broadcast. Um, and 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 they're not able to do so, and and so they end up legally broadcasting. Um, mm-hmm. um, and um, uh, I think it raises more fundamental questions about you know how, why why is and how are these uh, airwaves airwaves and licenses being controlled, um, and what do what kind of uh, of a uh, you know uh, environment do we want when it comes to broadcasting and artistic expression uh, uh, do we want to promote more uh, sort of community radio uh, uh, and uh, and to facilitate that i mean these are basic political questions that uh, go back to the political system rather than to uh, to the legal system
0: um, The freedom to hold opinions. Uh, it seems to be the, the the partner of freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is quite, as we discovered, quite easy to, to talk about. Freedom to hold opinions is a bit more slippery, isn't it? Mm. And also more difficult to protect, I guess. There's, there's a good
2: Hong Kong case that illustrates this right. Um, it arises in a disability context. Uh, uh, it's a case of uh, Ma Bik-Yung, uh, his court of final appeal, the facts are very simple. It involves taxi driver who uh, is uh, extremely rude to a person who's in a ha- uh, in a wheelchair, um, and um, then there's a complaint that's made to the um, Equal Opportunities Commission. So it's a, it's a disability case where this where disability discrimination is found, uh, but the issue of remedy goes up to the court, and the remedy that the lower courts had ordered was to order this taxi driver to make an apology uh, to the individual. But the taxi driver, of course, was someone who didn't want to make the apology, uh, was completely un, un, uh, unrepentant. Uh, and, uh, and so it was a f- the question of a forced apology. And you see, you're, so you see uh, it, it raises the issue of you know, holding an opinion. Are you, it actually encovers both freedom of opinion and expression because you're forcing someone to apologize when they don't want to, and exactly you're forcing them to express it in a letter <laughs> uh, to the, to the, the, the victim. Um, and the question in this case, a very narrow one, about whether such an order in respect of an unwilling uh, uh, person was always unconstitutional. Was always unconstitutional, and the court was not prepared to say that. Uh, um, and they were prepared to leave the the door slightly open, leave it open for rare cases, um, uh, but they didn't really clarify when that, what kind of rare cases uh, they they would be. Uh, But on the facts of this case, this is clearly a case where it should not have been ordered. Uh, You wouldn't have gained really anything uh, because if someone's insincere, no one really benefits uh, from Mm. from forcing someone to do that.
0: Mm. Okay, well, we've heard some notably free speech in this program. (laughs) I'm now going to put a stop to it by saying we've run out of time. But many thanks indeed to Simon Young and to Chris Hutton, and thank you for listening.